Thank you for tuning in to the 147th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk with me, your host, Daryl D. Lane, as always. I want to thank you for tuning in whatever avenue you are listening to me by, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, any podcasting platform you may be listening to that I did not name going to have Scott Angus on the show, covers the Indiana Pacers for The Athletic, also does play-by-play. Uh, Scott gave a really good interview. Uh, we talked about a lot of stuff. It was really probably one of the better interviews I've ever had, one of the best interviews I've ever had, and I'll, I'll say that quite frankly. Got, got a lot of good information on him. We, we, we talked about he's been around the NBA for a long time. He was a ball boy for the Pacers. Which players gave him the best tips? As a play-by-play guy, what he makes of somebody like Tony Romo, who's going to get paid more than some professional athletes himself. You don't really see that in the space of sports broadcasting, in particular, play-by-play announcing. So, we talk about a lot of stuff. Obviously, we talk about the Pacers, the run of the Pacers from the the early 2010s with Paul George, Roy Hibbert, Lance Stevenson, Frank Vogel, that crew, a crescendo of LeBron's career with Miami Heat. Really interesting interview, really interesting content that Scott provided. Once again, I want to thank Scott Angus for coming on the pod. Going to have that interview for you in about 8 to 10 minutes. Being recorded in Buffalo, as has been the case every day since the pandemic started. Coronavirus canceled school, canceled everything. Everybody's in lockdown. Sports is canceled, like as many of you know, or should know, not unless you've been living under a rock. And you know, somebody, and by the way, somebody kind of asked me if if I knew that the coronavirus was affecting people. And it was some random person that had me on Snapchat and they asked me that. And I was like, okay, I'm definitely getting trolled. Because not unless you're elderly and don't know what's going on anymore, or you're an infant, if you're anything in between, you, you have to know what's going on in the world, right? Uh, at least have some, some you know, some semblance of, of kind of what's going on. So I thought that was interesting. But with no sports, the draft is still going on. I think that's the last real sporting event that we're going to have. And with that, I want to give some advice, some Daryl D. Lane advice to the Cincinnati Bengals. It's projected that they will draft Joe Burrow with the first overall pick. Now, if I'm the Bengals, here's what I do. What is the knock against Joe Burrow? The biggest knock. The only great year he's ever had in college. Because let's let's put out Joe Burrow's career in totality. He was a backup his first three years of college. He couldn't beat out Dwayne Haskins. Who, right now, people are debating whether he will be the future for the Washington Redskins or not. People still don't know if Dwayne Haskins can play. People are like, yeah, we think Gardner Minshew might be able to play. Yeah, Kyler Murray's 5'5", five five. he can play. We don't know if Dwayne Haskins can play. Yeah, Daniel Jones, the guy everybody criticized last year's draft, we think he can play. We don't know if Dwayne Haskins can play, though. That's the guy who beat out Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow goes to LSU. He's average. Mediocre. A good college quarterback. 
that goes, that you think goes, gets his education, maybe he can be a coach someday. You don't think he goes from that his junior year, I believe he threw like 16 touchdown passes, to having the greatest college football season by any quarterback in the history of the sport, history of the game, and leading his team to an undefeated national title while winning the Heisman. So he's only had one elite year, and he has no elite traits. He's not super big. He's not super strong. He's not physically imposing. He's not this dynamic athlete, even though he is athletic. He has good traits. He's a good athlete. He has a good arm. He's accurate. But there's nothing about him that you're like, this guy is, he has this generational ability. No, he was just really, really good for one year. And albeit, he had the best offensive line, the best wide receivers, and they played in a spread offense and brought in a new offensive coordinator. And they threw it around a lot and they were really productive. And they had the best team. And I know they had the best team because they blew out everybody by like 10 points the whole year. They dismantled Oklahoma, and then they slowly but surely picked apart a Clemson team that was very, very good, that was undefeated, that had won like 24, 25 straight games apart and picked them to pieces. So it wasn't just all Joe Burrow. So what's he going to do when he gets, goes to Cincinnati and he plays with mediocre to below average talent? How good will Joe Burrows be? I don't know. When Joe Burrow, his junior year at LSU, played with not the best team on the field every time. He looked pretty average. You don't draft number one to be average. Right? You don't. So, the Bengals are taking a huge risk. Because Joe Burrow, hey, tell you, Cincinnati's not very talented. That's why they're number one pick. He's not going to have the best coaching. He's not going to have the best GM. He's not going to have the best offensive line. He has A.J. Green, but he's not going to have the best receiving corpse. Not going to have the best defense. It's not always going to be like, hey, I'll just throw it up to you. You go get it. Hey, I'm in the pocket. Nobody's going to touch me. No, it's not going to be like that because the Browns are talented, the Ravens are talented, and the Steelers are talented, and the Cleveland Bra- and the Cincinnati Bengals are by far the worst team in that division talent-wise. By far. So if I'm the Bengals, why not do this? Draft Chase Young. What do you know? He's an Ohio kid as well. Played at Ohio State for three years. Everybody in the state of Ohio knows who Chase Young is. Just like how people say Joe Burrow was from that Ohio area, from the state of Ohio, so was Chase Young. And he actually played for the Buckeyes. Actually played for them. You know Chase Young will not bust. I've had Kenny Sims on here multiple times, talked to Ben Karen, talked to a lot of guys. Chase Young's a 10-sack guy day one. You don't need to protect him. You don't need to worry about his confidence. He's going to come out right away and be able to get his numbers. That's just the way it is. So why not draft Chase Young? You're going to be bad next year anyway. Maybe you get the number one pick. And then you can get either Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence, who who people universally say are better pro prospects than Joe Burrow. Are you going to bank your job, your career, for the Bengals, Bengals organization, GM, coach, on a guy with one good year. You know what that's like? It's like you're going to hire somebody for a job. And you're like, hey, this guy might have a slightly more important position, but you know what? He could really F me over if things go bad. And if things go bad, I'm going to get fired and I'm the boss. Huh, that doesn't sound very smart. Or you can know, hey, there's this really qualified candidate coming up next year. Let's hire him. What do you think makes more sense? You get Chase Young. Now, come next. After the break on Barbershop Sports Talk, going to have Scott Angus on the show. 
Cut them next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. Barbershop Sports Talk. We have a very special guest with us, Scott Agnes. He covers the Indiana Pacers for the Athletic, and he does uh, play-by-play as well. How are you doing, Scott? Hey, things are going all right. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Now, the first thing I have to ask you, uh, with the coronavirus literally stopping sports and, for the purposes of this conversation, the NBA, uh, what have you been doing with with no games going on? Uh to write about there's still people wanting to have an outlet to read about their favorite team or just to read about something in general so i've been still trying to turn out plenty of content each week still doing my weekly pacers podcast as well uh, just kind of like everyone else so i see all these people having extra time and binging movies and binging tv shows but the only uh extra time if you will that i kind of have on my docket is those that in the evening, right, when I'm normally going to games or I'm normally watching the games, and since there's none of that, that's where I can enjoy a little more me time. But otherwise, yeah, still writing plenty of Pacers coverage on The Athletic. Now, I want to ask you, did you kind of foresee the NBA getting shut down? Like, like when was it for you that you realized, okay, you know, the coronavirus is kind of going on, you know, everybody knows what from China to Europe now, kind of the U.S., but what was your thought that you thought it was really going to affect the NBA? Yeah, so I was kind of casually watching what was going on in China primarily because of the Chinese Basketball Association and as, as it relates to the Pacers. And uh, they were actually in, in line to hopefully sign Lance Stevenson to their roster. Their, their injury has been, their uh, roster, I should say, has been uh, troubling in terms of injuries that they've had to deal with this season. So they were trying to work with Lance Stevenson and get him on a contract buyout. Um, from his China Basketball Association. He'd been in Indy, or excuse me, been in the United States for a couple of months because the league had been on hold, so I knew that. Uh, another former Pacer like Joe Young was affected. Um, but it really didn't seem like it would hit us as strong as it did, I thought, until early March. Um, at that point, you could see it kind of being inevitable, I thought, the fact that the first game back um, that we had uh, with all these different things implemented, uh, where you, you didn't have locker rooms open, where you didn't have true shoot-arounds, where guys had to stay um, separate. And that just didn't seem sustainable to me. And so that night, night before the NBA suspended its season, the Boston Celtics were in town, and just the routine for everyone was very, very different. So at that point, you could tell for certain that something was going to happen. Now... A lot of people have been talking about if the NBA is going to come back. There's been some talk about maybe it starts up over the summer. Uh, maybe they have it all in uh, in Las Vegas. They have the playoffs run there. What do you think will happen for the NBA for this season? Yeah, so first I should preface this by saying I don't think anybody knows, right? We all have to wait out this virus. We all have to wait out perhaps the vaccine or perhaps some way to make games and such sustainable comes down to it because you can't have a situation where maybe guys are, are in a hotel but there's no test. There's certain things like that, right? I think the best case scenario potentially would be resuming 
some kind of mini camp, maybe in late June, early July, um, getting a few games in and then going straight to the playoffs. The most realistic thing I see happening is probably something happening in July. Maybe you just have a playoff teams. Maybe even you condense the playoffs in terms of number of games per round. The first round does not need to be seven games. We could change that regardless, right? I think we can all agree on that. And then uh, maybe you can consider something like shrinking each playoff uh, in the East and the West to four teams or six teams. That's something you could consider um, as well. I just don't think at this point it's going to be possible to get the number of games in that they'd like as well as the postseason. But I think if they can, it, it's huge for them to try to finish the season and crown a winner. Now, I kind of want to shift to this. Uh, so you do play-by-play. And, and I do want to ask you this as somebody that does play-by-play. And just to cr- cross sports for a minute, when you see a guy like Tony Romo that – this, if there is a football season, it's going to get paid like $16, $17 million. More money, to put it in perspective, than professional athletes themselves get paid. What do you think when you hear about that? I think everybody has a value, and the best thing that happened to him was just the circumstances, meaning there were a couple of giant networks competing with each other. Talking about ESPN and CBS, you had a situation where you had rights coming up for, for these games in the league. And so not only did these networks want to have the best color analyst that they that there is right now in football, but they also wanted to kind of show them off, if you will, uh, to take their their package or their bid, if you will, to these networks. Someone like ESPN, they're trying to get a game as well on ABC. The more um, flavorful or better intensified the packages, the better it goes. And you also have to keep in mind here, Daryl, that the fact that these these networks are paying fortunes one and two billion dollars for the rights to broadcast games so realistically it's a huge number but when you consider they pay billions for the rights in the grand scheme of things what is a very small percentage that have the best analysts in the game that's a very good explanation so would you say that so the play-by-play role has now become the most highly paid job but it's just crazy for me to think that literally like he's now getting paid more than players that actually play (laughs) I think that's the yeah yeah the color color analyst this is the the one thing in here is just he he has established a credible brand as being the face of the league in terms of being on on the game coverage right and so he, he set a demand for himself and worked out the timing, like I said, of his contract. And so to be such an in-demand color analyst, that's almost a significant portion of what his player earnings were, right? Um, I don't think this is a new standard. That's the other thing. This is more of an exception than it is now the new rule. I think you are going to see guys like a Troy Aikman and Collinsworth get paid more than, say, their 5 or 6 or $7 million. But 18, with all incentives and, and everything, um, included benefits, and that's more of an exception. You're not going to, I don't think, see a substantial upgrade for the entire broadcasting landscape, especially because there's more networks, there's more broadcasters than ever as well. Now, I do want to ask you, somebody that uh, does play-by-play, I want to know, what's been your favorite moment during play-by-play? I think for me, it's the teams I've worked with because you get a feel and get a be part of the team. You get the opportunity to see the ins of and outs of the team. It's very different than covering a team like I am primarily right now, where it's somewhat restricted. They're trying to keep things 
uh, hidden from you. It's more things you're trying to discover where being on that team bus, being on the team plane, being when they're your meals in the video session. to go behind the scenes and experience a lot of that and you're often treated better and taken care of in terms of intel and those sorts of things even if you can't use it it helps you paint a better picture for your audience now what's been a couple of your favorite games like do you have a couple of games that stick back and you're like wow like you think back like i called that game and it was pretty cool yeah i've had a couple buzzer beaters um those certainly stand out i called several horizon league tournament games um so those those stand out as well. Uh, the other big one was kind of at the near the start of my career back in high school. Had the opportunity to call a game that include included uh, the couple of sons of Michael Jordan. So he was courtside at the game, and then Eric Gordon, who was on uh, my high school, he was in the game and uh, tore him up for like forty five. And it was a game on ESPN. So that was really cool as well. That one sticks out for sure. Now, I kind of want to switch to this, right? So, you've covered the Pacers since 2012. And it's really ironic because during that time, really, really this decade, when people talk about the decade, right? That was kind of the height of uh, Indiana Pacers basketball from about 2012 to like that 2014-15 range when the Pacers and Heat were going at it. So, I just want to know, what were those series like to be around? Yeah, those are some of my first couple of years in covering the team. And um, I had worked years before that around the team, actually, as always. So I was taking care of the visiting team. I was taking care of the players as well. But uh, one of the big highlights of that playoff series, I think, was when it came down to, to LeBron and Paul George shaking hands at half court. It was kind of LeBron acknowledging, hey, Paul, you're, you're that next tier of player in this league. I thought that was kind of a cool, special moment uh, to witness and write about um, the back and forth. The, the mental games, we had one series right before it where the Pacers' former coach, Frank Vogel, came out and strategically was saying, hey, you, got, you have to watch this Miami Heat team because they are such a flopping team. Well, that was just pure strategy. So it was fun to see that back and forth. And then also, because it was LeBron and because it was the Heat, for a significant national team. So you had you know, your ESPN reporters, you had so many different national writers fly in for this game, not because of the Pacers, mainly because of LeBron, but also because of the Heat. And for the Pacers, on a small small market level, we just don't see that very often. Now, it's also really interesting about that series, too, because I think about the, the, that stretch, because I think most people would say at that point in time in LeBron's career, that was probably the best he was. So what was it kind of like to be kind of there and be like, you know, this is a player, like, playing at the peak of his powers, and I'm watching this. Like, what was that like? Yeah, that was fun, but I would argue I don't think at all that was his peak. I think it feels like his last several years has, has him been at his peak, and I say that while he has been older and, yes, not as athletic or slower. Still incredible incredible athleticism. I think his mind is way above everyone else in terms of being three and four steps ahead. He's passing with and no looks and behind the backs and those sorts of things. You're just in awe, right, in all that. I think what I was also able to see during those years was him to fully understand kind of his superpower and the power that he possesses uh, whenever he talks, whenever there's an open microphone, whenever someone 
wants to uh, speak with him. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I thought knowing his value, that was the other thing he kind of learned during those years. There was a great conversation that a group of us had, and it always is a group because so many people want to talk with LeBron. But I remember before just a regular season game during those years when he was on the Heat, and he had he at that point was just just uh, chatting, not uh, recording or anything, just having the conversation of if there was no salary cap, if there was no limitation to a max contract, what is his value, right? At that point, you know, he was probably making $25 million a year. I think you could realistically say that it, to an NBA team, he was worth at least $100 million. And that was the sort of conversations that were just as fun to me um, and seeing his power within the media anytime he talked on, you know, the front page of the paper or the headline in Sports Center. So he was just kind of wrapping his mind around that. And I also think we saw how much he changed from the first year in Miami to the second. The first, he had left Cleveland. He, you know, I'm taking my talent to South Beach. That was just uh, the wrong strategy. And ever since then, the most impressive thing about LeBron to me is the fact that for a guy that was so hyped going all the way back to high school, he's barely, if ever, had a misstep. I think that that live interview, I'm taking my talents to South Beach, is just about it. Outside of that, he has been flawless and outseated, exceeded all expectations I think anybody had for him. That's what, that's really what I learned the most, I think, about LeBron. Now, I kind of also want to go back because what, because really, like, and I think these series are really interesting when they, they play each other. I think they played each other in 12, 13, and 14. Uh, and they all went six or, or seven games. And, and for a lot of that, too, you mentioned kind of Paul George, LeBron even acknowledging Paul George. When in that run did you yourself kind of be like, okay, Paul George is a legitimate player. He's top 10 for sure. Maybe he's top five. He can go with a guy like LeBron. When was that moment for you when you kind of saw Paul George's evolution? Yeah, I think it was kind of that 13-14 season, right? The previous year, he had been to the conference finals. They had come up one game short. They always like to say they were kind of one quarter short in winning that series and potentially getting to the finals. But there, we saw them go back and forth. No one, and I still even say this, is even on LeBron's level. To me, he remains the most valuable player, without a doubt, in the league, at least to me. But that said, you could see... Paul George's coming out party, if you will, kind of during the 12-13 season where he kind of took the reins when it previously been owned by Danny Granger, a close friend of his. Um, that next year, Granger was traded, but before then, the Pacers have gotten out to an outstanding start. I think they started something like you know 37-10. and 10. Um, Then they kind of collapsed, and that was the other part of the Paul George and that tier story. Um, they brought on Andrew Bynum. That didn't work out. But the Big picture in all this. You could understand, I think, at that point, I would say LeBron, or excuse me, I think Paul kind of emerged at that point as probably a top 25 player, now probably a top 15 player to me. I wouldn't say he's a top 10. But uh, you could tell he was something special and had come from relatively unknown from Fresno State. I remember being um, at the Pacers draft party back in 2010 when they drafted him 10th overall, and the sentiment was who? Wait, who? Who did they drop? Never heard of this guy. And, you know, it's far away from here in the Midwest, and it's a guy most people hadn't hadn't seen, and the pick before them was one of their own here locally in Gordon Hayward from Butler. So it was he went from relatively unknown and a guy that Jim O'Brien wouldn't play, and so that's why actually he became the defender that he became, um, because teammates were like, hey, look, you're not going to get in just without earning it. So play defense, you'll earn your way. And now 
he's without doubt a top five defender to me and one of the probably the second best two-way player any third best in the league uh, at playing both ends so that's where I also give him a lot of credit and then of course we had that injury on August 1st 2014 that I'll never forget as well now is it crazy to think when you're watching that series that you'd be like okay in about six to seven years LeBron's going to be with the Lakers. He's going to be playing against Paul George. Everybody's going to talk about, and, and Paul George is going to be with the Clippers, and Frank Vogel's going to be coaching LeBron for the Lakers. How crazy would it have been if I told you that six years ago when those series were going on? Yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't have been unthinkable. Primarily the point of Frank Vogel being the head coach um, of the Lakers. The LeBron, that would have been a little bit far-fetched because I didn't think maybe he'd be a guy that would want to go to one of those big teams. Although, you could put Miami somewhat up there, but I thought there was a chance maybe he'd try to kind of go win one with the, the, the lesser teams, if you will, the Clevelands that hadn't got the championship in forever. I thought he did give some consideration, we knew, to New York, maybe Chicago back then. But, yeah, so much of this is just unthinkable. And, you know, it, it's still unheard of to believe just the little other things that have gone on. Roy Hibbert, for example, former Pacer, he hated Jim O'Brien, his first coach. Now they're teammates and co-workers. Uh, he's an, a player development coach. Jim O'Brien's an assistant coach for the 76ers. So what we do know is NBA is a small community. Once you get in, then you're kind of in there for life as long as you treat people right. So it's a very small world inside that bubble. Now, can you just talk about Frank Vogel as a coach? Because I feel like, you know, he had a stint in Orlando that was, you know, it left a little bit to be desired. He was like the third or fourth guy for the Lakers. And everybody crushes Frank Vogel. Uh, especially like in the beginning of the year, and I never understood it because you look at the success he's had in Indiana. He seems like he's a smart guy. He relates to players. He holds players accountable on the defensive end. Why do you think there was kind of so much hate around Frank Vogel? And just talk about the coach he really is. I think the first thought was because it's not LeBron's guy. And if you need to take care of LeBron in these final years of his career, you absolutely do it. I'm not sure why they didn't pay up and do whatever was necessary to get LeBron's top guy, seemingly Ty Lue. Uh, then you botched some of this. Um, and, yeah, he ultimately was probably the third candidate ultimately to do so. Um, I kind of skip over the Orlando years. I know he's probably like that as well, mainly because they were not a stable, stable franchise at that point. They totally whiffed on several draft picks. Um, they just made moves that didn't make sense, such as bringing Bismarck Diambo in when you already had Vucevic and other guys. Uh, I thought that was a very questionable franchise and kind of still is, although they kind of stabilized that. Um, but I, So I think it's more appropriate to go back to his Pacers days, where he emerged as a, a video coordinator, then to an assistant coach, then to a head coach, immediately earns the player's trust, is an optimistic guy, he's a guy that believes in his pace, players through and through. Um, he's not a former player, so that is one knock on him for some guys, if they want to be coached by a former player, they say they understand them a little bit more. I don't really buy that. That would be a, a realistic knock against him. But I think he's done an outstanding job. And however much you want to talk about Nick Nurse potentially as the coach of the year, I don't know how you go against Frank Vogel because he wasn't the top choice. He's not LeBron's guy. He's got, he didn't get a pick this coaching staff. They had Kobe's death. They've had so much go on, this virus thing. And the fact that they have the, this best record right now, um, has just been outstanding. I think far exceeded most people's expectation when they realistically they have two of the top five players in the league, but after that, that roster is not great. And he dealt with Lance Stevenson back in Indiana, so you know yeah. he knows how to deal with personalities. 
not as difficult as people understand. He's actually a really likable guy. He's a fan favorite, actually, here in Indiana. And you have to kind of understand Lance to tame him down and those sorts of things. So you, you do have to tolerate him a little bit, but I don't think it's as difficult as maybe the outside basketball world views him. He's actually well-liked within the locker room. He's a hard worker. He's a guy you know is going to bring in every single game, and that's the reason the Pacers and the injuries that's the reason the Pacers were going to bring him back for the third time. Well, interesting too that you say that because I feel like okay, how about this? Cuz when people talk about Lance, I feel like they kind of put him in the uh the the JR category in terms of that type of basketball player, and I don't know if that's a fair knock <clears throat> just in terms of you know, kind of being a little difficult, kind of being a little bit out there, but are you saying you kind of disagree with that premise that cuz I feel like that's how people label have labeled Lance. The understanding of Lance is that he does things a little bit differently. It's not necessarily wrong, but he's different in um, how he approaches. Sure, he's made his dumb mistakes. Nothing near as bad, in my estimation, as J.R. Smith. Um, <laughs> a lot of this goes to the start of his career, right? Like when he did the choke sign when he wasn't even playing during those early Pacers heat series. That absolutely, completely unacceptable. On the other hand, a couple of years later, he was in the starting lineup. He was one of those guys for instance, guarding Dwayne Wade and getting stopped and playing hard and diving on the floor and rallying the crowd and those sorts of things. So that was also really impressive. Now, uh, before we uh, move on, because I do want to ask you this one more thing about uh, the Pacers uh, from that 12 to 14 range-ish range. Uh, what happened to Roy Hibbert? Because a lot was made of Roy. Because I, there was, I think it was might have been 2014, it was the year they got the number one seed. They started out really well. Then they kind of struggled a little bit, and everybody was kind of like, what the hell happened to Roy Hibber? So so do you have any... Yeah, so it was was a combination of so many things. For one, uh, those couple of years were a little bit difficult, um, personally, that I don't need to get into. Secondly, uh, he had some issues in terms of just mentally what he was going through. Uh, At the beginning of the year, he came out with a comment, that it was to David Aldridge, who's now with the Athletics, saying there's some selfish dudes in the locker room. Well, that didn't play over well with guys. And so in the locker room, that, that didn't play well. He was continually asked about that throughout the season. Um, then he just, it's funny, he was the most jovial, fun-loving, great interview, great in the locker room. Then he kind of closed up. He's an only child. He's a guy that probably is not playing basketball if he's 6'2 instead of 7'. And so you, all, you have to understand those factors in all this. Um, he came out in the playoffs after a very good year, after um, a stretch where he had a significant block on Carmelo Anthony that ended any kind of run, probably the best Knicks run in the last two decades. I think it was in 2013. Um, but then in the, I think it was the conference finals. was asked about where he stood out in the uh, defensive player of the year, where I think he finished something like 10th. And don't know if we can cuss or not on this show, but basically he said, y'all blanks don't watch us, talking about national media. So that didn't play very well with anyone. And then he, and then he brought out a no-homo quote that he kind of giggled and laughed about but obviously did not play well back then. So then you had that. Then you had him kind of triple up a little bit the postseason. He, was, he took a lot of criticism from his, for his lack of productivity. And again, it just mentally, it, it, it really, uh, really affected him. And then it didn't help at the end of the year. Uh, Larry Bird, who never sugarcoats words, was asked about his future with the team, would he stay in the starting lineup, those sorts of things. He said, yeah, 
I don't know. We're looking at everything. Everything's on the table. Maybe he'll have to come off the bench. You know, whatever. Anyway, it was very harsh tone. That that hurt him even more. Then he was traded and dealt two or three different times. Then on top of all that, we got to talk about the bigger picture of the NBA. They got rid of the all-star spot for center. Just the center spot completely evolved, where it's no longer really the back of the basket, the, the physical type of play. If you're a big, you really need to be able to shoot anymore. So the game evolved. And then he had so many things that happened during that time that really impacted him as well. Now, how do you think those Pacer teams, and Paul George too, because Paul George was the best player for that run, I think most most people would say, and he's now in L.A. But a couple of those guys, they're kind of not viewed as the same players they once were. Uh, how do people in Indiana remember those teams in those years? So those years are remembered favorably because they're the best of the last decade. Um, Paul George right now is, his fans are very soured with him because he was a guy that essentially said, you guys aren't good enough for me, trade me. Now, I keep trying to tell fans, and I wrote it back then, that while his actions and how he went about it were poor, he actually did the Pacers a favor. Because if he did not say anything, if he did not request the trade, he could have played the year out knowing he was going to leave. Then he leaves, and the Pacers get nothing. Instead, he asked out. Of course, the trouble with all that, it was two days after he sat his charity softball outing and quipped how much he wants to bring a championship to Indy and Pacers are his home. Excuse me, that's where he went wrong. On the other side of it, Kevin Pritchard did a great job in his first month on the job to get two All-Stars and Victor Oladipo and Demonis Sabonis in return. So the Pacers made out just fine. But that group certainly remembered fondly. I don't think um, George Hill gets enough credit for what he did for those teams. Roy Hibbert, I think people will feel better about in time. Um, David West was the constant leader of that group, although I will admit it seems like Pacer fans soured on him a little bit because back when he was with us, um, he even told us on the record, you know, I would never go play, go ring chasing, if you will. And you could argue, yeah, he did that a little bit when he went to San Antonio and then got two rings with the Golden State Warriors. So uh, Pacers are, fans are a very loyal bunch, but right now, at least in the short term, they hold things against them. But um, that was a very likable group and a formidable years. But it's one of the great what if. What if Paul George doesn't get injured? And what if those last few months in 2014 season, one of their best in franchise history, don't go south? And maybe they're in the conference finals pushing for the finals instead of, I think, losing in six games. Maybe they get to the finals and then who knows from there. Now... One good thing that did come, and you mentioned Paul George gave the team a heads up. They ended up getting Victor Aladipo, who I don't people didn't really think of him as a, a star, an all-star caliber player, but he really showed out in Indiana. Just talk about that, and when did you realize, you know, damn, like Victor Aladipo, he's more than just a guy. Yeah, so his was a circumstance where he needed somebody to embrace him, someone to love him, the exact opposite of what Paul George did for the franchise. So that's one reason they embraced him. Secondly, he went to Indiana University. He's a local product, one of uh, probably the guy that went, if he goes back to the university to a game, probably gets the loudest applause over the last 20 years, no doubt about it. So there's that love factor too, the familiarity uh, as well with Victor. Um, but in terms of how he was played, his first year and a half he was playing point guard. Well, that's not his true position. Um, so that was uncomfortable. He was playing in Orlando, where, which I already talked about, was very disorganized and under poor management. Um, which didn't really build a team properly. Then he went to Oklahoma City, and that did a lot for him, I think, off the court learning, 
quietly under Russell Westbrook, learning work ethic, learning how to be productive in the offseason and how hard you need to work. So he was already making a transformation down in Miami beginning in April of that first and only year in Oklahoma City. So I think while he, he has far exceeded all expectations with the Pacers, I think a lot of this was coming. He just needed that opportunity. And then, of course, Demonis Sabonis coming with him from OKC, and now he's having an all-star season this year. And that was no surprise. He was on track to do all that. He just needed more time. And this year he finally worked his way into the starting lineup, essentially asking for it, knowing he's an all-star. And, and he really did a great job, I, I think, of this season backing up his words with his play. Now, what do you think's the ceiling for those two? If they can get Victor Aladipo back and he gets to fully 100%, you have Sabonis. What do you think the ceiling is for a team like that in the East? I think they're, they're at least one star player away right now, if we're being realistic. They need to get from good to great. Right now, I think they could perhaps, if they hit on all cylinders, reach the conference finals if things broke that way. But realistically, they're not moving anything past that. They're not going to be Milwaukee in the conference finals, probably not Toronto either. What they really need is that a guy like Paul George, a 3-and-D, uh, two-way player, and that's a position they sort of lack, especially on the defensive end. Who's, who, do, who matches up against Giannis, against LeBron, against Kawhi Leonard? Um, they really lack that. And one way they can kind of counter that and try to advance this team is decide on their center. Is it feasible to spend $40 million a year and to start two centers each year? And the result, results haven't been pretty. Um, so that's something that this front office will have to consider this summer. So they're kind of like how Toronto was they're, they're, uh, a couple years ago before they won and they got Kawhi. They're kind of like that one wing guy, uh, bo- bo- both sides of the core player away. Yeah, you could say that. I think that's about right. Now, I also do want to ask you about Nate McMillan because, to me, Nate McMillan is one of the most underrated coaches in the NBA. <laughs> I, I, I don't think – because when people talk about the best coaches, they talk about Steve Kerr, they talk about Greg Popovich, but but nobody talks about Nate McMillan. Just talk about the type of coach Nate McMillan is. Yeah, I wouldn't put him at all on their level. I think he's, he's probably easily a top 15 coach, perhaps a top 10, um, but I don't think he's in that top tier. I think the biggest criticism – um, he faces is his after timeout plays and those plays he goes through late in games because those this season have not been effective at all. Uh, a little bit concerning. They've been repetitive. They've been predictable even to those casually watching this team. Um, whereas you get more creative minds, a Nick Nurse, a Brad Stevens, those sorts of things. Those guys you kind of watch intensely knowing something special is about to happen. But I think where you can give Nate a lot of credit it's how he's managed egos. I think that's the number one job of any head coach on the NBA level. It's not coaching. It's managing the egos and managing a locker room. He's done a fabulous job doing that. He's done an excellent job navigating adversity. They had Victor Oladipo's injury last year, Jeremy Lamb, and, and more than 170 games lost, I think, due to injury this season. And yet they're still fifth in the Eastern Conference. He easily has the respect of his players. Uh, media respects him a great deal. He, he does a lot for the community. So I think, I think he is... Uh, one of the better coaches in this league, and you're absolutely right, does not get enough attention. I think, in fact, last year I voted him third in my Coach of the Year balloting. Um, they did a, he did a great job navigating so much, despite Victor only being available for something like 30 games last season. Now, I do have to ask you about this. Earlier in the year, there was uh, some beef behind, but, but between Jimmy Butler and TJ Warren. Can you talk about that? Explain how that happened. 
Yeah, so they just had a few that kept going back and forth. And so uh, it's funny because I should actually be in Miami right now uh, for a day. It'd be nice and probably 80 degrees and sunny um, and getting ready to go into American Airlines Arena. Uh, But that was a situation where those two butted heads in each of the last two games and kind of traded blows in the last one. And so uh, it made to be set up to be an intense matchup here in what would have been the fourth matchup of the year. But um, that's something that as these two teams are kind of on the same level, I think. If they have budding young stars. They've exceeded expectations, outperformed those expectations, and will be a threat in the East for the next several years. Now, did TJ ever respond to what Jimmy said? Because Jimmy kind of was <laughs> basically got told him how we couldn't guard him and went, you know, on a, a rant that only Jimmy Butler can do. But, but did TJ ever respond to that? <laughs> Yeah, TJ just said the kind of straightforward answers. He goes, hey, you know what? We're both competitors. We were, we were playing each other. Uh, I'm not sure why he responded like that. Um, we were just in the heat of the battle. Um, so there wasn't much to it from TJ's in that he would at least say publicly, which is a smart thing to do. No reason to add some, add some gasoline to the fire. If anything, you put it out by beating him the next game. Now, my last question for you is, what's been, see, in your Tiger, since you've been around the Pacers, right? So you said you were a ball boy. What's been, like, the, the moment that you were, the, your funniest or most interesting moment being around the team? Uh, well, one of them, I think, would have to be back in the day when I was taking care of the Orlando Magic in their heyday. I'm talking uh, J.J. Reddick, Richard Lewis, Dwight Howard, uh, Jameer Nelson. There was a game as the ball boy taking care of them where I didn't even go to the arena for the first two hours, two hours leading up to the game because they had so many food and drink demands outside of the arena. So I think I went to Panera Bread, Steak and Shake, Subway, Chick-fil-A, um, and maybe a couple other places to get their pregame meals. So that was kind of an interesting night. It was also the best night in terms of tips. And that's what, as ball boys making minimum wage, that was something you lived off of. So that was a, a non-basketball um interesting story and then one of my favorites back in the day as well I think was was working with two big men that were two of the most lovable genuine playful guys being Shaq and Dwight Howard because what I'd say about those guys is they'd always take care of you and they were also two guys that would create a fun atmosphere in the locker they make fun of you they make fun of me they make fun of themselves and it was just a fun time to be in that locker room uh, I thought a lot of the times and and now things have changed a little bit um since that, that time, and it's fun to even talk to guys that used to be in the locker room 20 and 30 years ago to hear about how guys were taken care of. There's guys that used to pay ball boys as tuition, and maybe they'd go out uh, hanging out after games and stuff. So it's kind of a fun community we have, and here's the small tidbit for you, for example. The guy that stopped the NBA season, it was that Utah Jazz OKC game. You'll remember a man, tall guy, about 6'4", running out to stop the game. His name's Dr. Donnie Strat. He's a former ball boy with the Pacers, got his medical degree, and is now the director of medical with the Thunder. He was, used to be known as Reggie's ball boy. So it was a guy with Pacer connections that ultimately probably saved some guys from getting the coronavirus in that game and allowed for the NBA to kind of be ahead of the curve in terms of suspending a season. So uh, as I said earlier, it's kind of a small bubble, and once you're inside, it can be a lot of fun. Who was the best tipper? Uh, one of my favorites was Jameer Nelson. He'd give me a hundred to start the night oh. and basically have a running tap, right? Okay. So maybe you only he'd only spend twenty bucks, or maybe he'd spend fifty. 
either way, you knew it was going to be a good night. The other guy, I would say, uh, was probably Shaq. I can see. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. That does not surprise me. Scott, I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. All right, man. Thanks so much for having me. Be safe. And once again, I want to thank you for tuning in to the 147th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk. <laughs>